Well, hello and welcome to this week's episode of Political State from the Oklahoman. I'm Ben Felder here in the Oklahoman's downtown video studio. We are 11 days away from the big election day. And joining me this week to talk about it, my uh, Political State co-host and Capitol Bureau Chief, Dale Denwalt. Dale, how's it going? It's doing great. Uh, working on a couple of campaign stories and trying to get the information out about what's happening in northwestern Oklahoma City um, in that general metro area and uh, how that could shake out for um, the the Democrats hoping to pick up a couple of Republican seats. Yeah, a lot of things up for grab there. We're gonna get into that today. Uh, our guest this week, Bailey Perkins from the Oklahoma Policy Institute, who I think leads as the leaderboard on a number of times she's been on as a guest. Uh, Bailey, thanks so much for your time today. Oh, thank you for inviting me back. Yeah, so we want to get into some of those legislative seats uh, and races, but let's start with the governor's race, the, the top of the ticket, or the top of the ballot. Uh, Democrat Drew Ebenson, Republican Kevin Stitt locked in what has seemed to be a pretty competitive race. According to Cook Political Report, it's a toss-up. It actually today moved from likely Republican to a toss-up. Now, I've seen a variety of polls. Some have showed Stitt up by six, seven, eight points. Others have showed it to be a tie race. Not really, I didn't get a chance to really analyze which polls uh, Cook was using. Um, and you know, a lot of statewide races in Oklahoma break real late. So uh, it did seem to be pretty close last week and tied. We saw some this week that moved a little, uh, a little bit maybe for an advantage for Stitt. But either way, this is a competitive race. Probably shocking to a lot of people outside of Oklahoma. And let's be honest, a year ago would have been shocking to us. We've been living a, a, this competitive race for several weeks, so we're used to it. But um, Edmondson is making a real push for uh, the governor's office. And let's start, let's talk, talk about him and what he needs, because he is the underdog, you know? I mean, this is a Republican state. Republicans hold every statewide office, the trifecta of state government. So he's the underdog until that changes. Um, Stitt's going to do well in the rural areas. We know that Edmonds is going to do well in the urban areas. It seems like those suburban areas, that northwest Oklahoma City quadrant that you kind of talked about, might be where he can make up some ground. I've actually spent the last couple of days talking to some uh, uh, women voters, female voters in the Oklahoma City suburbs who are re registered Republicans, they're voting Republican mostly across their ballot, except for Edmondson. They say the number one reason is schools. How big is education this year, Bailey? That is, and is it big enough where we are going to see maybe some moderate Republicans consider Edmondson? I think education is certainly the the top button issue uh, for this election season. Um, a lot of folks were wondering whether or not the impact of the teacher walkout would last beyond just what happened um, in April and May. Um, but we're seeing from what happened in the primary election with many incumbents being unseated um, and that in the runoff as well um, to the number of teachers running that um, teachers are really uh, pushing the, the, the conversation on education this election cycle. Um, I'm also hearing at different candidate forums and, and many Republican um, candidates are saying that education is the number one issue. We have to talk about um, where we move forward on funding even after um, the teacher pay raise last session. And so um, because of the, the pressure that's been added to the legislature after the walkout, I think education will continue to be a top issue this election cycle and will help sway um, voters to make this a tight race. Yeah, you know, those tax increases that funded the teacher pay raise, um, a dozen lawmakers who voted against it have been beat and their, and their incumbents have been beat in their primary uh, re-election bids. Is that voters punishing them for their decision or is that voters you think still saying more needs to be done? We don't trust that they're gonna be able to deliver next year too. I mean, do you think voters still have an appetite 
for, for more taxes to, to go towards things like education. I, I think the discussion is really going to pivot uh, toward accountability in the new legislative session at least. Uh, and I think uh, you know if it's if it's going to be Kevin Stitt, that, that's going to be you know that's going to be his topic. Um, he's not going to call for any additional taxes. Drew Evanson is going to try to instigate a fight in the legislature. I think uh, a fight it may be too strong a word, but at least a discussion among lawmakers uh, when he calls uh, when uh, when you know if if he gets elected and he stands before the legislature and says we need more education funding and we need to do it by raising taxes. Um, and, he may have that mandate if he wins uh, 11 days from now, uh, but you know, kind of depends on if it, how close of a race it is. Yeah, he was campaigning in southeast Oklahoma yesterday. I was with him part of the time, and, and during a stop in Ada, a supporter asked him, like, hey, I support you, but how are you going to work with Republicans? Because you're going to have a Republican legislature. Now, Edmondson pointed to the fact that, hey, some of those people who stood in the way of the tax increases, they were voted out of office. And the rest of the legislature, more moderate maybe, they approved the tax increases. So he kind of used it as a way of saying they may be inclined to do it again. I feel like Republican leaders will tell you, yes, we approved it last year. That's why we're not going to do it again. I mean, where do you feel like, what kind of mandate would Edmondson be able to bring Bailey into the Capitol if he were to win and pull up what would be a pretty big upset? I think that is a really good question and we'll have to see after November 6th and going into the legislative session of what happens. But I think it is an opportunity for whoever wins to um, continue building on um, the progress that was made last legislative session because there will be um, additional dollars available to put into either education or healthcare or wherever the legislature sees fit. And so it will really depend on um, whoever wins and where they decide to, to put resources. Yeah, and in, in talking to legislative candidates uh, around the state, uh, around the state, not just in the Oklahoma City area, uh, there there is a real difference to what uh, the top issues are. Um, for some candidates, education really isn't as strong of a motivator um, in the electorate uh, as it would have been six months ago. Um, now, in in the, the suburban areas of Oklahoma and the urban areas of Oklahoma City, uh, certainly, yeah, it's top three issues, uh, but the, the the further out you go, the more rural areas tend to be more about health care yes. and uh, even criminal justice and corrections. Yeah. I think that's a great point that you raise because um, candidates who are talking about uh, making investments into the healthcare sector because we're seeing many rural hospitals closing and um, we're seeing more Oklahomans have less access to um, any types of health services. And so um, that could be a strong advantage for candidates who are talking about um, the needs for investments in, in healthcare to keep rural hospitals intact and yeah. will be an advantage. Well, of course, you know, Edmondson's running on Medicaid expansion, which, you know, now that Obama's not in office anymore, he doesn't, you know, he's not closely tied to this uh, principle. I mean, people know where it came from, but it, you know, he's not the boogeyman over this anymore in Oklahoma. You know, there's some thought that he may be able to get some support um, for people for that. You know, so I, what I hear, Edmondson supporters will tell you that what they like about him is he's got specific details to his plan, mainly the tax increase proposals. He, he knows what he wants to spend and he knows how he wants to get the money. And they'll, they'll accuse Stitt of saying that I want to run government like a business, that we have extra money to use, and if we're just more efficient, we'll find more money. Now, we've heard that a lot from Republicans, but let me ask you this. Um, if Todd Lamb had won the primary and he was saying that, I think a lot of people would say, We've been hearing that for eight years. You've been the lieutenant governor for eight years. You know, how different is this going to be? But 
But is Stitt really kind of bringing something different to the table because he has no government experience, that he is, a, he is kind of a true outsider, that when he says, I want to run government like a business, and we've heard that many times from Republicans, that unlike many of the other ones that we've heard that from, he actually has been running a, a somewhat successful, a pretty successful business. I mean, is it different for him, you think, being that kind of outsider? I think he's going to be surprised when he walks into the Capitol and uh, the things that he would like to do, he may uh, get pushback on, you know. Uh, um, it's one thing for, for President Trump to um, have a bully pulpit in the White House because he had such uh, really strong support across the country. Uh, uh, it, you know, Kevin Stitt, if he wins, uh, it doesn't look like it's going to be by a wide margin. Um, so you know, the mandate for him uh, to really shake things up might not be there. But he'll have a Republican House and Senate. He will. I mean, so yeah. the resistance may not be that big. Uh, but yeah, Bailey, what were you going to say? Well, and, and that is clearly not the narrative that's moving voters in this election season um, because it is a, a consistent talking point that is that is used um, during election cycles of, of building accountability and, and finding efficiencies and things until um, the realities of what it takes to govern and what our state agencies need just to um, operate is is learned by those who, who get into the position. And so um, I think there will be a level of um, learning and growing once whoever is elected into that position will see what's needed for, for governance and we'll have to adjust accordingly. But I don't think that the voters this election cycle are telling us uh, that cuts are needed and, and different things are telling us that um, we need important investments in things like health care, we need important investments into education, and there's some next steps that we need to take to have this road of recovery and build from what we did um, last session. Well, and I think, and it's an interesting point, I, you know, I talked about spending some time in suburban Oklahoma City and talking to voters out there, some registered Republicans who are voting, who are going to vote for Edmondson, um, who told me that they were still not really that big on, on more taxes, especially on gross production tax. A lot of them I talked to, almost everyone I talked to, had some connection to oil and gas, whether they worked there, a spouse worked there, or whatever, and said, I'm not sure that Edmondson's right on the gross production tax. That's so my follow-up question. Be like, Why are you supporting them? I mean, this is a, a central part of this platform. And there seemed to be an acknowledgement that maybe he won't get that done. And, I, and they said, I don't know that he'll get that part done, and maybe he'll kind of awaken it, you know, when he gets in there. <laughs> but that something has to get done. That, that some additional revenue has to be found. And that's really at the core of this political transition that we've seen in Oklahoma over the last five years, right? And we've gone from a leaders telling us that it is a spending problem 90% of the way to now everyone's almost admitting that it's a, it's a revenue problem in some form. Stitt doesn't want to raise taxes, but he'll even say, you know, we're not spending the money wisely. It's not flowing in the right way. But that's been a huge shift over the last few years, right? And whether you're Republican or Democrat, I think everyone is tired of being last in everything that's good and, and first in everything that's bad. And so I think there is um, a built awareness in this election cycle that if we want to change outcomes in Oklahoma, then it's going to take some needed investments. Yeah. And I tell you, Ben, people right now are so in tune with what's going on. Uh, the, the knowledge that voters have and the attention that they're paying to what's going on uh, now, uh, they're not going to be very forgiving if the legislature, uh, the next governor mucks this up. Um, if if we get you know two to four years from now and things are are you know bad in the voters' eyes, they'll kick everybody out again because they'll remember why they sent them uh, to the Capitol in the first place. Yeah, I mean I think that's a great point, and the voter engagement level seems to be increased. 
That's why I'm always interested about polls when you're in an election where you expect turnout to be higher. I mean, you know pollsters take that into account. You know, they ask who they're talking to, are you a likely voter, and, and, and ask them other questions to determine that. But you can't get your, you can't get your arms completely around you know, a, a, a higher turnout election um, because people are going to come that you're maybe not expecting. Um, and that's what makes me think it's going to be really interesting to see what happens in the suburbs. What happens in northwest Oklahoma City? Let's talk about that for a moment. Dale, you said you're looking at some races there. Democrats have kind of been, when you look at the ba- political battlefield in, in Oklahoma, you know, they've built their fort in urban Oklahoma City and they are steadily marching northwest. Cindy Munson has picked up a uh, seat, Colin Walkie has picked up a seat, and they keep kind of pushing back out there. How likely is it that they're going to continue to see their, their footprint uh, continue to grow northwest? Depends on who you talk to, but I think Democrats feel like they have the best chance in a really long time to pick up a couple of Republican Senate seats out there. Um, you know, you have in Senate District 30, um, Julia Kurt and uh, John Simcox. This is David Julie, Holt's old seat. That's right. The mayor of Oklahoma um, City. Uh, David Holt, famously a, a moderate Republican. Uh, it would be hard to, uh, just looking at, you know, what he t- what he talked about in the legislature and, and how he interacted with people, it would be hard to sort of pin him down on on which party he belonged to um, and I think that the, the voters you know they, they, they picked their legislator um, you know how they how, how they wanted their legislator mm-hmm. to be so essentially it's a moderate part of the city uh, the the balance of voter registration uh, is uh, Republicans have about a 2,000 vote advantage uh, after, uh, of more than 30,000 people registered to vote um, and so you've got a, um, a place that's kind of prime for, for Democrats to, to maybe snag one from Republicans. And uh, that's talking about Julie, Julia Kurt, the, uh, the Democrat in that race. Yeah. When I think for the first time in a while we're seeing across the state, but especially in urban areas, that we're seeing races become very competitive. And we're seeing um, quality candidates on, on both sides of um, the political spectrum who are um, taking that chance to to run for office. And so as we see uh, races continue to be competitive, we'll see increases in turnouts um, for people on both sides of the aisle. Yeah. So. How much of a factor do you think gender is playing? I mean, this is nationally being talked about in some ways as, um, as a strong year for female candidates. Uh, women voters are being focused on quite a bit um, and for a lot of reasons. Um, nationally, but here locally, we're seeing it seems like we're, we're seeing more female candidates, especially in the northwest part of the city. And I was telling you, I, I, I drive through neighborhoods in northwest Oklahoma City where I see homes that have um, a yard sign for Carrie Hicks, for um, Kendra Horn, who's running for Congress, uh, Carrie uh, Bloomberg. Uh, and so there's a theme there, right? I mean, these are all right. Democrats, but they're also all women. And are, do we think, does, do you think female voters are energized in a way that is going to? help Democrats, especially since a lot of these fem- most, not all, but most of these female candidates are on the Democratic Someone side. Someone pointed me to a poll that just came out from uh, Magellan uh, Group, uh, a survey done, and uh, it looked at a lot of things statewide. Uh, but the the one thing that, that this person wanted to point out to me is that uh, something like 69% of suburban women are very interested in, uh, are very motivated in this election. And uh, it's a similar number for Democratic women. Uh, and the, the thinking is, among Democrats, is that the energized uh, female voter base is going to help push a lot of these races uh, 
their way, especially when they get to vote for um, a woman um, in a uh, for uh, a seat uh, for a group, the state senate, that is mostly guys, um, and you know I think women are going to play a huge role in this election, especially when you talk about education um, and uh, uh, a lot of other things. Yeah. When you also have to take into account the conversations that are happening nationally um, from what happened with the uh, Supreme Court confirmation mm -hmm. and the Me Too movement, um, there's a lot of momentum uh, building with women seeing that if they want to have a voice, they want to have a say in issues that impact them the most, then they have to put their name um, in the hat and, and show up at the ballot box. And so I think beyond just this year, um, women are capitalizing on this moment and taking the opportunity to um, increase representation um, and all the way down the ballot. So Yeah. And, you know, this is something we've talked about on the show before, but, you know, in a year we saw a two-week teacher walkout, if you're talking about uh, teacher rights and the educator workforce, that's a gender issue, right? I mean, mm -hmm. uh, women make up the bulk of teaching positions across the state. And I don't think it's a coincidence that teachers are traditionally, you know, have some of the lowest pay amongst uh, other similar uh, fields, and it's dominated by women. I just I don't think that's a coincidence. And so I, I, I also think that when you see you know, that two-week walkout, you see the educators that are running, and you're seeing plenty of, of guy educators running as well. Um, but that, that, that's, a, that's a gender issue, too, that maybe doesn't necessarily fall under the banner of women's rights. But I feel like, it, and not even subconsciously, I think, I think uh, you know, parents and mothers are, are aware of this, but I just, I feel like that's kind of energized a little bit. Of, of when it comes to female voters and female candidates. I don't know, you feel like I'm off on that? I just No, I, I think you're spot on, um, especially when we look at uh, participating in the walkout. You saw a lot of women, you saw a lot of mothers. Um, when you look at healthcare, women are disproportionately impacted by the negative outcomes. And so um, whatever the issue is, um, all these issues are women's issues and they're all um, creating that perfect storm of empowering women to, to now um, take their place in this election cycle. I think another thing that needs to be pointed out for Democrats, if they are going to have some success, especially here in the urban areas, and pick up a few seats, and that would be pretty big. You know, one thing is we're seeing is they're also putting together professional campaigns. And we didn't see that several years ago. I mean, part of the reason why Democrats were losing, not just because of the political shift underway, but they're just sometimes there weren't Democratic candidates, and the ones that were were kind of sacrificial lambs. But some of the candidates you're talking about, and you take a look about uh, Julia Kurt and, and Carrie Hicks, I mean, they've been running for over a year. They have well-funded uh, campaigns, they have professional campaigns. A lot of them will tell you that they're drawing their playbook from Cindy Munson, and Republicans and Democrats will tell you often to me that they feel like Cindy Munson's one of the hardest working campaigners, and, and I don't mean that as a criticism, just the hardest working campaigner um, that, that there is. And so I think one thing that has to be realized is that Democrats have kind of put together a field of of candidates that can make a race competitive. Right. And I was talking to uh, Mark Falk, the, uh, the Democratic chair of Oklahoma County. He said this is the first time that he can remember that Democrats have um, challenged every uh, district in the county. Um, and, and I think a, a lot of it has to do with the frustration that, that voters feel. Um, you know, in the past, if, uh, if a, a race was going to be say um, uh, too hard for a Democrat to even place 20% in uh, or 40% or then you wouldn't get a good candidate willing to run for that seat 
And I think the, the people who would be interested in this, they saw what was going on and realized that, you know, if I'm going to have a chance to, to have a, a successful run, um, now's the time. And that's where you're seeing a lot of these uh, sort of top-tier candidates getting in the race who are able to raise money, uh, have the, the stamina to, to get out and knock doors every day, and, uh, and present a, a coherent message uh, for the voters in their district. Yeah. Well, I think what Cindy's race taught many candidates is that you can't assume because somebody has a letter behind their name that there's going to be areas of disagreement. And it's really taking the opportunity um, to talk with people about the values that matter most to them. Um, and there are many values that are Oklahoma values that aren't exclusive to political parties. And so more candidates showing up on the doors and engaging candidates and talking with them about the things that matter most to them. Because I agree with you, Dale, that a lot of voters um, feel frustrated because they see things not getting done at the state capitol and they want to see someone who's willing to work on the other side of the aisle to get things done on behalf of Oklahomans to move us forward. And so um, I think that's a productive thing that came out of um, Cindy's race that's inspiring other candidates on, on both sides of the aisle. Well, she got, and some of her critics would say like, well, she's, you know, you can't really see Democrat on a lot of her campaign material. And, you know, she's not, she doesn't have a dominant color except for green. You know, I don't know what party she's running for. But that was kind of the point, right? And not necessarily to be deceptive, but you're right. We are in this era, era, especially in Northwest Oklahoma City, where it is more purple. You know, I think voters are, are not wanting to necessarily see a candidate that's just waving the party banner. Um, and, you know, that's a moderate district, and you got to play to that district. And we're seeing that from some of the other candidates in Northwest, that they are, you know, I, I haven't seen any that are ashamed to be a Democrat by any means, right. but they're not necessarily running as this as part of a democratic takeover, you know, they're running as kind of a, a left of center um, candidate. You know, the thing too about, you know, I, when you think about Munson and, and how she got the the, uh, the seat. So she originally ran against, I don't have my notes in front of me, so it's dangerous, but David Danks was That's right. the representative. She challenged a popular Republican. His wife held the seat before he did. Mm -hmm. I mean, long, the Danks had, had this seat for forever. Um, and she came really close to beating him. And she came close, which was really surprising. He passed away within a year, I, I believe yeah. was right. And all of a sudden she was, and not that you know you don't plan on your opponent you know passing away, um, but all of a sudden she was the one that had the name recognition. She was the one that had the ground game put into effect. And the Republicans that tried to keep the seat, they were they were newcomers. So putting yourself in a position to win is kind of the first step. She did that. Democrats seem to be doing that this year. But let's pull back the reins a little bit here. Uh, we don't know who's going to who's going to win the governor's election. But let's assume that it's Dip. If it is. Republicans are likely to win every other statewide seat. They're going to keep control of the House and Senate by pretty wide margins. So what will be the big, what will, what will be the storyline on election night if Stitt wins? Republicans are still going to be in control, maybe with a more moderate breed in some areas, but what can we expect now over the next couple of years? That's the headline. What do we expect? You know, we, we have a, a third of the legislature turning over either from uh, candidates losing their seats outright or resigning uh, to seek greener pastures. And the, the big question is for, um, for reporters, for uh, people who work in policy, for lobbyists, and everyone else in the state of Oklahoma is, who are these people? What kind of legislature is this going to be? Um, it's, it's kind of a, a really defining point, I think, in Oklahoma's history, not just our political history, but our history as a state. Um, when you have so much turnover uh, when it comes to how the state is run. And I think the, the next 
the next six months, six to eight months, as, as we decide what what kind of laws we're going to introduce and uh, adopt. It's going to be um, um, really. It could be. It could be a turning point. It could be more the same, or it could be a, a real turning point in in how the state operates. Yeah, and it, that's the big question. Nobody knows. Y- yeah, you're right. And I, you know. Uh, Democrat Representative Jason Dunnington, Republican Senator um, Adam Pugh, uh, have started this nonprofit. They they helped uh, coordinate the student-led gubernatorial debate we saw a couple weeks ago, and they both are kind of talking about the fact that you know we come from different parties, but we're really close friends, and we kind of hope to want to model that you know mutual respect and focusing on the things that we agree and not so much things we disagree about. I remember thinking like, yeah, but you know these are two two, two young guys. I mean, mm-hmm. I think Dunnington was elected four years ago. Uh, PU was elected two years ago, but then I thought, you know, but come January, they're going to be senior they're members. Be, yeah, I mean, and so these these new this kind of freshman caucus or you know young caucus or whatever you want to call it um, that we've been talking about the last few years. You're right, they're going to be senior members. It's going to be interesting to see how that shapes uh, the, the tone. I definitely agree um, because what happens um, in November is going to decide what direction the state is going to move in with um, having fewer members with that um, knowledge and that institutional knowledge of, of what happened has happened from year to year it's going to be interesting to see uh, where that um, I guess what was referred to as that freshman caucus yeah. who was known as the the group of moderates who were willing to um, step on the political edges to, to get what needs to be done and how they're going to to shape their their colleagues and the new level of freshmen that are are going to walk through the door so yeah and there'll be an institutional knowledge gap yes mm-hmm. be interesting how they fill that yes. sometimes we talk about that being a bad thing you know impressionable fat freshmen that can be swayed by senior members or lobbyists I wonder if it's gonna be such a big group though maybe there's a little bit of power in those numbers mm-hmm. and know, there's going to be an expectation since um, Republicans have been in control of the House, the Senate, and the governor's seat even over the past six to eight years of what happens from here. Yeah. Um, so, um, especially with a lot of the progress that was made um, in terms of passing um, a revenue increase for the first time in the next 30 years, like what are the next steps and, and where do we go with um, either making those investments or what policy decisions will be made now that um, if Republicans were mm-hmm. to, to keep control, what, what does that mean for the, the next yeah. four to eight years? Yeah, and that's a great point. I mean, one way or another, when we look back at this election year, it's going to be a change year. From the outside looking in, that may seem laughable because you're right, Republicans may continue to control you know, the trifecta of power in every statewide position. But even if Stitt wins and the Republicans hold on to the mansion, he's running as a change agent and has you know, set a hard bar for, for change and efficiency. I mean, he hasn't shied away from that. So I think voters, if, if he does get elected, are going to want to hold him accountable to that. Um, and then we've seen a lot of new Republican members come in that seem to be a little bit more moderate on many issues through the incumbent. So one way or another, it's a change election. Uh, we should have to wait and see who's at the top um, of, of the state capitol. You know, the final point I want to make and get your thoughts on as we wrap up this episode is... Um, I think one of the, there's so much talk about the national election right now and these competitive Senate seats and House seats and Trump is this umbrella over everything. Um, But in Oklahoma, I think one of the reasons why we're kind of seeing this move to the middle a little bit is because the focus is really on local issues. And local issues are typically moderate issues. You know, they're not, it's hard to be extremist on local issues in a lot of ways. 
Um, so we're kind of in this like bubble, so to speak, while the rest of the country is focusing on these like national issues. Even our even our, the somewhat competitive maybe fifth congressional race between Horn and Russell, sometimes is focused on local issues like education, which they don't really have much to do with. Um, just what are your thoughts on that? On just this kind of intent local focus, um, which I think is a good thing for the state that we're not necessarily people don't seem to be casting a ballot because of who's in the White House per se. Um, but maybe because of what's happening around the corner at their at their kids' school. You know, uh, Oklahoma is uh, for uh, pretty much forever has not held much sway with what goes on nationally. We don't have many electoral votes. Um, occasionally, uh, when accordingly, we don't have many members in Congress. Occasionally, we'll get someone who's in a powerful position. Uh, you know, Carl Albert, uh, David Boren, um, but generally. Um, our, our, you know, our uh, Congress uh, persons uh, are uh, fairly quiet, so to speak. Um, and I think it probably makes sense that you know, instead of Oklahoma voters focusing on, you know, hoping to get something out of national politics or national politics to turn its eye toward the state, mm -hmm. uh, to really focus on what matters here at home. Yeah. Well, and I think with post-teacher walkout, I mean, all eyes were on Oklahoma from um, not just at our state level, but even internationally. And so I think a lot of conversation was driven towards what was happening here at home um, in a time that it wasn't happening in years past where uh, but there's a lot of a national coverage of what's going on, you know, um, at in, in Congress or in, in DC, um, but we had a lot of attention last session about what was happening here at home. And I think when you make that connection for the voters of how a policy decision affects their day-to-day -day lives, that gives them that motivation to want to turn out to um, participate in their government and, to, and to, to make changes that we saw in the primary election and in this past runoff election. And so I think this was a really valuable time uh, um, for the voters to see what's happening at 23rd Lincoln and mm -hmm. see their place in shaping um, how it can affect them locally. Yeah, I mean, there's a more of an intense focus on local issues, and you know, something that Kevin Estet has said is that you know, you know, when I started running for governor last year, I, I realized that we were at the bottom of the list on all these things, and and Edmondson is criticizing for that, saying, "Where have you been?" And and he uses one of my favorite stump lines. I have to admit when he says, you know, why hasn't he been reading the newspaper? So I appreciate that. <laughs> but I think what Stitt's saying, and I think he's, I, and I think that he has a lot of people that are backing him on this, just saying like, hey, I haven't been involved in the mess, and I haven't been involved in politics, but now I'm, you know, I want to make, you know, the, my state a better place, and I'm, I'm realizing that we have all these challenges. So, but Edmondson is saying, hey, where have you been? But I think collectively, I don't, I don't think Stitt's the only one who didn't know about these problems a few years right. ago, right? Um, and uh, you know, there are things that sometimes in our bubble we write about so often. Um, but there were a lot of people after the walkout that said, "I had no idea that schools were, you know, facing these types of challenges." And it's well, it wasn't just about schools that yeah, were brought yeah, to the surface. Exactly. We're talking about mental health. We're yeah. talking about the need for investments in 
healthcare. I mean, you have Republicans and Democrats talking about Medicaid expansion, and I think that is to the credit and testament of those who showed up and used their voice at the Capitol, and also the ground game and organizing of people talking with their neighbors and their families and friends um, about what's happening. And so you're having conversations about, oh man, that makes sense about yeah. how it applies to my local school or how it applied to me losing my hospital in my area. And so um, that really made the connection for the the organizing at the ground level for many advocates from um, education supporters, but also um, the conversations that were happening during session. Yeah, so. well, gonna be so many fascinating storylines to come out of election night, uh, which is 11 days away. We've got one more episode. I'm sure, I think we actually may do a few others between now and then, so plenty of political coverage and analysis still to come. Uh, from the Oklahoma. And Bailey, thanks so much for, for joining us again. I'm sure we're going to have you back again oh, so you can add to your leaderboard you. total. Yes. Uh, with Dale, I'm Ben. Thanks for watching. We will see you again next week for another episode of Political State from the Oklahoma.